When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Science of Sport podcast with sports editor Mike Finch and sports scientist Professor Ross Tucker. So welcome to our third episode of 2024, the Science of Sport podcast. And as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. Uh, but today we have a very special guest that is uh, playing a role in our little team. And uh, we're going to be announcing some of our new uh, additions to the Science of Sport franchise, so to speak. And I'm going to introduce our guest in a very short while um, to talk a little bit about how we're going to do that, how we're going to move uh, some of the discussions from Patreon into other formats and uh, all that sort of thing. Um, and also we're going to wrap up some of the news which has been going on around the world of science, uh, sports science over the last uh, couple of weeks, which has been uh, quite, a fa- quite a fascinating and uh, interesting place to be. So we're going to wrap up some of those stories. And uh, hopefully the main focus today is going to be some discussion on these enhanced games. And if you don't know what those are about, listen up, because it is a very interesting topic. There are many different views on it. And of course, uh, whether it happens or not, well, that's going to be something we will we'll discuss. But anyway, uh, as I said, we I have a very special guest with us, and Gareth Davies is sitting and talking to us uh, via Zoom at the moment. Gareth, whereabouts are you talking to us from? Uh, South Wales, South right Wales, at the very bottom end of Wales. <laughs> now, Gareth is a very big member of our Patreon community. For those of you who don't know our Patreon community, if you go to Patreon and look at the Science of Sport podcast, we have a big community of people there, and most of um, well, all of which donate a small amount to our podcast each month. And for that, they get all sorts of discussions that we have on that particular platform. And they get a newsletter from Ross and a lot of Ross's insight. And Gareth has been very instrumental in building that community, keeping track of all the discussions. And I know, Ross, you mm. have lots into action with Gareth because not only is he involved in that discussion forum, but also is a guy that knows what's happening in the news side of sports science before most of us do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example, and I'm going to ask Gareth to answer this question on the spot. Is the, the latest newsletter that went out with a podcast about two weeks ago has now got how many comments in response to it? Do you know? Uh, sadly, I do. Yeah, 198 as of this morning. <laughs> so, so I'll be honest. I can't keep up with it. Like it's it's actually overwhelming, and I can't believe the quality of those comments. It's not it's not thanks for the podcast. It's actually thanks for the podcast. And how about this? And then two paragraphs later, I've been asked five things I don't know the answer to. Uh, I'll give you one example. We had a patron join us, Simon. Thanks very much. He he wanted to ask a question on behalf of his son, who's a triathlete, and he wanted to know about eating before training sessions early, early in the morning and whether we should look at the carb content or the sugar content. And I'm not kidding, like it kicked off half a dozen responses that have taught me exactly how certain sweet Italian confectionery is made and how the ingredients are listed on the packaging. I now learned that thanks to Patron. But anyway, the the point I'm trying to get at is that it's a really in-depth, I think high quality environment. But the problem with Patron is that it's, it's not structured for discussion. So what happens is, 
you'll see a comment by let's say Kevin, who's another really prolific uh, patron member. Thanks, Kevin. And he'll make some point and he'll provide a couple of links and then Gerald will respond to that with another link or two. And then two days later, I go back because I want to respond or find those links. And it's, it's like, it takes me 20 minutes to navigate 198 comments. And so in discussions with Gareth, it was actually Gareth raised this point towards the end of last year. He said, well, what if there's a better way to do this? And I said, let's, let's go for it. And so the, the vision of the podcast is to create as an offshoot the world's most informed sports science community. That's, that's the big vision. And it's going to be run through a platform called Discourse. And Gareth has been working hard in the background at setting up this Discourse platform, and it will be exclusive to patron members. So when you sign up as, as a patron, you will have access to Discourse. Gareth's going to tell you how to do that in a moment. And Gareth has created this great layout where the, the topics are themed. So you can say, all right, I want to find a discussion on doping. I want to find something on running shoes. I want to find something on, uh, what else are we talking about today? Concussion, for instance, and, and sport. And you'll be able to go in, find the comments you're looking for, have a great engagement with other people. Gareth will facilitate it. I'll do my best to be involved as often as possible. And I'm really excited because it will, I think it'll become like one of the great resources for people who use science in their sport. Mm. Yeah. Gareth, I mean, what, what, why do you think that discussion forum has taken off so much? I mean, we talked a little bit about how active it is. Why, why do you think that's happened? I think people are just genuinely interested in what, what we're talking about on the podcasts. Um, and Really, there's so much added value that you give them. Just that conversation, again, we go back to that one on carbs this morning. People looking for specific advice and getting it from a, a wide range of people. And yeah, we it's found not me, it. eh? It's not yeah. me. Yeah. The value, I'm telling you, the, and I'm not being humble, the value in the, in the patron community in the discussion and what will become discourse is not me. It's the other people who are yeah. so like hobbyist, but so passionate about it that they are more informed than most sports scientists I've ever met, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Gareth, I cut you off. Carry on. <laughs> no, I mean, th that's exactly right. We uh, we found that we don't really need Dross anymore, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just grown as a community. And obviously, then you start to learn a little bit more about people's characters, about what they know about. Um, uh, and it's just become just a, somewhere to be, which cuts through a lot of the clutter that you find on the internet in general. Um, because you know that the people that you're you're talking to in there or who are commenting, um, they know what they're talking about. They're mm. professionals and they have valid experience rather than just the echo chamber of Twitter. So mm -hmm. uh, that's what that's what's really provided entertainment and value to me as an athlete myself. Um, so yeah, it's just become such a good community which i got frustrated with with uh, the patreon forums um, because we were losing so much information there was mm. so much good information being posted and just being lost as the, the the threads scrolled on so um i've pulled all the old patreon threads together and brought them to discourse so nothing's been lost you can just search for carbohydrates running shoes as you say uh, and you'll find a wealth of information there yeah and and I know people might be saying, oh, not another place I've got to go to. Like, and, and I don't want to take away from Patreon. You'd, you'll still sign up to be a patron, as you mentioned, price mm -hmm. of a coffee every month. But just as part of a patron, you will now have this place to go to if you want to get involved in the conversation. But the newsletters will still be sent out as usual. And it's just the, the discussion part of patron now moves to what is a far better place to have it. So that's, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, for us, 
for me as a consumer, I always like to kind of look at that and say, right, well, I'm a person who's not on Patreon, but I've heard this podcast today. The first thing I'm going to do is become a Patreon member. What happens then for me then to be involved in the discourse um, discussions that are happening, Gareth? Uh, not a lot, really. Once you're a Patreon member, you can then you'll be given the link to the the discourse site. You hop over there, log in with your Patreon in uh, login, um, and you're taken straight to the uh, to the discourse discussions. You're as soon as you're a Patreon subscriber, then you are, have access to everything that's on discourse. So mm -hmm. it's just another site to visit, I suppose, in one sense. Um, but it will be a one stop shop for for everything mm -hmm. there. Cool. And I know that you you look at these forums every day. I mean, are there are there rules that people need to obey when they're in this discourse channel? Because I know a lot of chat forums they they have some rules which are guidelines. I mean, are you are you the one looking after that nobody's stepping out of line? Well, you need a moderator or two yeah. in, in any internet discussion. I'm hoping, um, and experience has told me because I've run these things before that as it's a, a paid subscription model, that the people you get aren't trolls. They're actually interested in what's going on. Um, and so generally they behave themselves. And in the thousands of Patreon comments, I think uh, I think you'll agree that I've, I've never once seen anybody, people will disagree, but hmm. certainly not have any sort of um, falling out. Yeah. Uh, nice. Which obviously on an unpaid forum, you're going to get that because anybody can join, anybody can say what they want. And and so that's by being a subscription-only model. Well, that's what we're avoiding, hopefully. But yes, there will be moderation. Yeah, and then and then the one outcome of all the discourse is that monthly to every six weeks, give or take, we're going to have a show. It'll be called the Science of Sport Discourse, and Gareth will join us. And in those four to six weeks, we'll pull out four or five of the most interesting discussions, usually linked to a news story or a previous podcast. And then we'll do a special episode specific to that, which is what today is about. So this is the third episode of the year, but it's the first ever of our Science of Sport Discourse series. And so Gareth has facilitated five interesting news, five or six interesting news topics, which is kind of what we were doing already. But now we're just going to be able to weave into the patrons' discussion a little bit better to, to talk to the community more. And I guess, I mean, this is a question for both of you. We can't get to every single bit of news that happens out there in the world of sports science and uh, on the podcast, but maybe on this channel, you'll be able to get much more information because I know, Gareth, you're you're looking at a lot of those stories and, and Ross often says, I, I get so much stuff from this community of people that I can't keep up with it and we can't do podcasts on it. But if it's something that interests you, you can pretty much stay up to date with what's happening. Gareth, would you, would you say that's a, an accurate way of adding value to the discourse discussion? Yeah, um, one of the beauties actually is that we've set up a, a number of categories based on what we've already learned from Patreon uh, about what people want to talk about. Um, believe it or not, doping and cheating was the uh, the most discussed topic. <laughs> uh, but so we've 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 got a number of categories. I can see them here: doping and cheating, your training, endurance, your nutrition, your concussion, uh, and and more. But you can tailor which ones you actually want to, to look at. You can actually turn them off or on. So you, if you're not interested whatsoever in the the, the transsexual DSD issue, you just turn that category off and you and you won't need to browse it. If you're not, um, or if you're only interested in one topic, just have that one on your feed. Mm. So it's very customizable. So yeah. Yeah. 
Well, thank you very much for all your, your your assistance with this, Gareth. I know that you've been very instrumental in not only yeah. getting us into the discourse channel, but also setting it up and making sure all those channels are there. So really a massive thank you from us to you for, for doing that. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a very helpful way. And if, you, if you're if you not sure how to how to get involved, you can always uh, contact us on our social media and on the Patreon channel if you're not uh, sure about how to get on. But it's pretty self-explanatory from what, what Gareth has just said. Anyway, so let's kick off some of the news and uh, Gareth's going to stay with us because a lot of the discussions that we've had on our Patreon channel and we'll now move to the uh, discourse channel have been uh, around these news stories. And the first one that comes up is this doping ban on this Russian skater, which was uh, not really well accepted by the, the Russians, <laughs> uh, the Russian coach in particular. But why why is it interesting when I mean, it's a doping ban? We know that the Russian athletes are very much um, always in the limelight when it comes to this kind of thing. And what amazes me is that we are seeing more and more of these cases and clearly there's not any effort being made to, to try and reduce and get Russia back into mainstream sport by stopping this kind of thing happening. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different threads that intersect to make this one interesting. Remember in 2022, Valieva was one of the stars of those Winter Olympic Games because she was only 15 and she was exceptional. But then what happened was that literally between two performances in those games, uh, it was announced that she'd failed a test. So now the conversation shifts. It's no longer the darling of the ice. It becomes like the cheating <laughs> athletes on the ice. And the problem was there was this, I remember distinctly watching her final, I think it would have been her final individual performance. And she was, she, she just looked like a terrorized person. She was terrified on the ice. She made various mistakes. No one was happy at the time, but then there was this big discussion around, should she have even competed? But she did. Uh, Russia won a gold medal in the team event, in part thanks to her performances. But then, of course, the discussion now goes along to, 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 to determine whether she gets to keep those medals, whether she serves a ban. And now, obviously, it's an issue for 15-year-old athlete doping. Mm -hmm. Is it a contamination? Has a doctor given her something deliberately? Does she know? Does she have the capacity to know? So lots of different things, I think, make it very interesting. But the end result of it is that she's been banned, and it's a four-year ban, and the team medal was stripped from Russia as a consequence. Yeah. So yeah, so it was a yeah, it was a high it was a high-profile story, and it wouldn't have been if it was a twenty-five-year-old, but it's a, it's a kid, it's a young doping kid. Yeah. So what does what does it mean for sport? And Susan Egglestaff, who's a journalist in Scotland, wrote a piece saying this is the final confirmation, if you needed it, that sport is broken. If mm -hmm. adults are doping children at the age of fifteen, I don't think it's the first time that's happened. So I'm not quite so sure. This is this this is the nail in the coffin, but that's the kind of thinking around it. Gareth, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts, uh, well, that's the Patreon comments. This was actually posted by uh, by Timo by the way, um, mm. who, who posted this. And we basically agreed in the comments that, um, as he says, she didn't have much of a choice and a victim of the system, if you ask me. And that's my thoughts exactly. No 15-year-old is going to have the wherewithal or the knowledge to dope. It's 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 got to be state-sponsored. Or if not state-sponsored, perhaps, then her coach is involved. Mm. Um, and as yeah, Ross gonna, said I, at the time... I was going to say, is it is it is it a close system around her that she's been um take that taking advantage of it or is it a state sponsored system i mean we don't we don't really know the evidence to that do we 
well, there, there is no evidence. So state sponsored yeah. might have been the wrong term. Perhaps your entourage is the is a better term for it. Well, if it had um, been in isolation, you wouldn't say it was state sponsored, but it's Russia. So you recognize a pattern and you say, okay, but is this part of the continuation of the pattern or is it an isolated new one? That's like, I guess the question there. Yeah. But I mean, the thing that the thing that struck me in a comment I then made was this this is as clear a case as there can possibly be where the doping ban Sure, you can take the athlete's results away, but now should the athlete sit for four years when, and I, I don't know to what extent one would totally absolve her because she was 15. I'm leaning towards quite a lot. <laughs> mm. But like if ever there was a case that the entourage needed to be sanctioned, it's this, and that doesn't happen. Mm. And I remember WADA had their big annual conference in South Africa. I've lost track of time, but it was probably just before COVID. So we call it 18 or 19. And it was out of that big annual, you know, every year WADA meets to discuss the changes in the world anti-doping code. And I remember specifically, and it was newsworthy because it was here in South Africa, they spoke about a stronger emphasis on the entourage, the doctors, the coaches who they know facilitate these cases. But they are so rarely persecuted, prosecuted and sanctioned. And instead, you have a 15-year-old athlete taking the entire, not just the brunt, the entire doping sanction for something that you know is not her. That seems to me to reveal a bigger flaw in the do- anti-doping system than the the fact that athletes cheat. Yeah, and and I, I made the point, and I know you had some thoughts on it, Gareth. Is how how often do we know of the entourage getting sanctions? It's so rare. Yeah, the, um, I, the, I certainly don't know. The only the only uh, time I could think of it was uh, the Festina affair in cycling with the uh, mm. the team was brought down. But well, that, the team wasn't brought down. They continued on. They just got kicked out of the tour for one year. And, and that was I'll, in part because it was the team that was caught. Remember, they caught the bloke at the border, Billy Foot. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a cyclist who was caught. They caught the entourage, so they pro- prosecuted the entourage. But every other time, it's like they catch the athlete and they never seem to be able to like translate that into entourage sanction. I did I did actually read, literally before we recorded, the the doping case of Naira Quintana, remember that case from, again, track of time, two years back in the tour mm. when they raided the hotels and so on, and the Quintana tested positive was a tramadol. I've, I've forgotten now. But I saw a headline that they're now going to look to prosecute the doctor. Bradley Wiggins didn't go down. Richard Freeman was eventually struck off, and we all know how that case went over many years. But, the, okay, so there it's, I see some hint of entourage, but it's not. it doesn't happen nearly often enough. Yeah. I mean, if I guess if it was a, a 15-year-old in England or the US or in a European country, not Russia, it would be a massive story and a massive investigation oh. to the entourage around it. I'm mm. just, just guessing because you won't – I mean, in Russia, they're not going to be keen to to make that uh, very public. I, I was interested to know – I mean, Gareth sent us uh, – a lot of notes around this issue. And uh, there was a quote from the Soviet coach, Tatiana Tarasova, who was uh, mm-hmm. quite blunt about Cass's verdict when she says, damn them scum, she told champions at .ru. So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, it's obvious what's happening, but yet even the coaches who are well respected are not happy with the decision, even though it's quite clear that something's gone, something's been done badly here. Yeah, I mean... The the coaches are well respected, maybe in Russia, 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. How <laughs> well respected they are. Well respected and exactly. Yeah. Anyways, on to another case, and this is another. This is this is comical. Obviously, obviously, going on a little bit, but yeah. we've talked a little bit about some of the 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 cloud around Kenyan athletics over the last six months to a year. And this recent case is 800 meter uh, runner Michael Sorani, who was approached by a female anti-doping officer. Now, that, what's interesting about this is he tries to get out of it by putting somebody in the place in place of him in the toilets. But uh, Ross, just tell us the story because. It's you wouldn't you wouldn't actually be able to write this down in a book. It's it's so well done. It's it's quite comical in a way. Yeah. So there are a few. Okay. So we're back in Kenya now, and Kenya has regularly featured in our doping conversations, which is another example of you can't tell me that a lot of these Kenyans are being caught are going off on their own initiative under their own steam and figuring out how to dope. So someone is facilitating this, and no one's ever managed to pin anything on anyone other than an athlete. But what Michael Saruni has done is. <laughs> He's, he's so laughably like comical in his deception that he's been banned for four years and there's no one to blame except him. So what's happened is he has been identified for a test after a race. And I guess knowing that he is going to fail that test has gone with the old adage, never take a test you can't pass, rather let someone else write it on your behalf. <laughs> it's like the plot of Suits, right? That's a, did you watch that show? Yes. Mike Ross <laughs> taking other people's tests. And so what happens is he, 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 he first he tries to evade the tester. He, he, I don't know if he's faking it, but he had COVID the week before. He coughs persistently, goes into the bathroom. The, the, the chaperone who's there to facilitate the collection of the urine sample follows him, can't go in. She gets someone else. In the end, they open the bathroom door and someone else comes out. So he supermaned his way into a transition. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, so so they're keeping an eye on Michael Cerrini uh, and later on the athlete basically swaps with someone who looks like him, later identified as someone called Dennis Mwangi. Now, Cerrini is actually quite a big name, Commonwealth 800-meter runner. So not not a guy you'd never have heard of if you followed the sport. In any event, uh, there's a story which Gareth might pick up on, but the end result of all this is Cerrini's gotten four years for evading testing mm. in a very overt way. I mean, Gareth, it seems to me that there's a, the, the Kenyan doping, ongoing doping scandals around Kenyan athletics is, I'm again, one of those people who don't believe that it's necessarily state-sponsored, but it sounds like it's almost a group of individuals that are managing to infiltrate the top level of Kenyan athletics and, and trying to get them to, yeah, I guess there's, there's, there's some element of evidence to suggest that it, there is some organization behind this. Oh, I, without a doubt, I think. Um, that's been talked about um many times on the on the forum um and i think we were up to nearly 100 doping cases now for kenya alone we were looking at the stats um which we posted uh, a few months ago now but they just keep coming through but it does i suppose go to prove sadly that doping does work because out of the two of them they both ran away um and only one was caught <laughs> and it, it was the non-athlete who wasn't doping um so it's it's just farcical at this point to, and then his his only defense was that he was never asked to provide a sample um they must have got the wrong person but considering that his face was up on the big screen apparently before the race and the doping officials could easily identify him that way it doesn't really wash does it no no i think the sad thing for me and and it comes to all different athletics is you kind of look at kenyan athletics and you wonder at them at their athletic ability and you look at the history of them uh, them as a nation across every distance imaginable in running and you know kenyan runs are synonymous with great runners and when you see these kind of things happening it makes you 
I guess to me it's, it feels very disappointing that this is happening because you you expect Kenyans to rely on their genetic ability, the fact that they train at our altitude, all those things that we love to believe about Kenyan athletes. And then suddenly this has been clouded by these issues, which taints the whole of Kenyan athletics, whether it's, you know, the guys like Saruni or the guys who are racing clean because yeah, they're yeah. being tainted in a way, aren't they? Getting- For sure. It's, it's, it's going to come down to money at the end of the day. It's yeah. going to come down to uh, runners, need to be successful to to earn their way in the world i was listening to a, a podcast this morning uh the the pto tour has been announced in triathlon and one of the questions posed to the uh the ceo of that was with the big money because they'll be earning up to a hundred thousand pounds a season with the big money will doping come in he said undoubtedly if if the money's there it's either money or prestige and mm-hmm. the bigger the the money the uh the more people are going to do whatever they can to get to it and it's probably if you're i think he came six in this race. So if you're perhaps a mid-tier runner in Kenya, it's your only hope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel ugh, embarrassed is a strong word, but I remember when I was still at the university in my days of like working there, we wrote papers on the Kenyan long distance running phenomenon where we looked at which sub-tribe and tribe they came from. And we wrote these articles saying that, you know, in a, in a tribe, the Nandi, for instance, which is like literally 3% the size of Europe. They produced 300 times more distance running medals. And what are the odds of this happening and so on? And there was a f- certain folklore around Kenyan long distance running phenomenon and it, it's tainted. There's no doubt. You can't, you can't look at that where 20 years ago, like the naive version of me would have said, what explains the Kenyan distance phenomenon? And I would have listed off altitude ancestry, uh, long Achilles tendons, distal elongation, like the narrowness of the hips and the pelvis making for efficient running economy, the energy return from the Achilles tendon, all the sort of stuff that have been described. But now, like you can't make that list and then seriously not put doping on it. You know, you have to, you have to account for it. It's, which is a real shame because I, I still would like to believe that some of it is not the consequence of that, but until they can get a grip on that situation and we just see this, I think this week there were three or four and we were only on Wednesday. Yeah. announced you know and a lot of the time like gary says it's a it's a 209 marathon runner it's a 224 female marathon runner which is not even good enough to get an invite to london but good enough to maybe win some prize money in milan or mm. istanbul or something so that's what that's what you're picking up but then you look at the person who's trying to run a sub two or the batch of men who can run sub 204 and you say but if the two twelve blokes get using it to run a two ten, then how how must I be confident that the two or three guys not using it to run two or two? And you you can't. Mm. That's so sad. I'm kind of in the same uh, uh, camp as Gareth on this one because I think to some extent the biggest temptation is when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, tenth on the on the list, and the first five are ahead of you. And first of all, you believe that probably they are they racing clean, and and you think, well, I'm never going to get to the top five unless I do something, and that's the difference. So I, I kind of, and maybe this is a naive um, view, but I, I I like to believe that the top athletes in all their chosen sports kind of get there because they are way more talented and have a gap over the rest of them. But it is those guys that are on the second tier that I think are the most susceptible to doping. Because yeah. Need- I've heard that in the context of rugby as well, because rugby's got a big like doping problem in the second level below the elites. Mm. And for instance, here in South Africa, 
rugby accounts for more positive tests than any other sport. And most of those are in schoolboys. Sure. And so then the argument goes, you know, the schoolboy needs to do it because he has to get big enough and strong enough to match up to his fellow 18-year-olds. And my thinking always is, well, then what happens when he leaves school and he's suddenly the smallest bloke in the new squad of adults? Does that temptation go away or does it get bigger? And if the, and if that schoolboy found a way to meet the challenge as a school kid, why would he not meet the challenge the same way as an adult? Uh, because the incentives and the testing and so on is there. But then you're relying an awful lot on testing that we know isn't always that good, especially in team sports. Mm. So I, I, I see that argument, but I just it makes me concerned that I don't know whether that 203 guy is a 205 guy boosted, enhanced, or is it a two or three guy unenhanced? And you'll never, you'd never know that, right? Yeah, it's impossible to know. So you, there is a, yeah, it's 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 a it's a big problem. I I don't, yeah. I mean, we know you know, yeah, we know where I stand on the on the doping side. I don't think testing has shown itself to be effective enough to deter like well resourced athletes. And I'll tell you two two things quickly: is in Kenya, everybody knows that okay, it's Kipchoge. It's kept them. They know those athletes are the ones who have got eyes on and they will go and train with them because if you can survive a block of training with Kipchoge, someone will spot you, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a real incentive. Like the pathway to success is well-defined in Kenya. Like you know exactly how good you have to be and you know how to show how good you are. The other thing I'll tell you is that a very prominent sports science researcher once went to Kenya because he wanted to test whether EPO works in Kenyans. Because there is a theory that EPO, the drug used by athletes to boost oxygen carrying capacity, will be less effective in Kenyans because they're at altitude and they already have a higher capacity for that. So he said, okay, we'll go test this out. And they put an advert out to say, we're looking for good Kenyan runners to come and test EPO. And the next morning, the queue was around the block. <laughs> and so they know what it is. Like it's not it's not like this thing where oh what 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 are you talking about what's EPO like <laughs> athletes know it and they know that it'll work and they look if if you offer it they will take it because of the incentives to get out of and it's it's the way you do it out of Kenya so yeah. so everything you need and it's got parallels with cycling in the 1990s you know if you didn't dope you couldn't survive in the professional peloton mm -hmm. and if you couldn't survive you'd lose your contract who was the famous cyclist who was stopped on a training ride and he just retired on the spot he says I'll go paint houses. Because that's the choice you made. And I think it's the same for Kenyans. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stay tuned for more. Right, so one of the interesting uh, things that's happening in the world of sport is these uh, many different docu-series that are happening at the moment. And I'm watching watching the second season of Breakpoint at the moment, which I'm finding quite good. And, of course, it all started with Formula One, I think, four years ago now. And mm. uh, Formula One kind of changed the way that people viewed the sport. Suddenly, the memberships and the listenerships and the watcherships and all those things around the world shot up as a result of these documentary series. And now there's... 
one in rugby that's come out um, amongst many others. And they seem to be the proliferation of these uh, docu-series. I mean, some of them are excellent. Some of them, not so much. Yeah, and I think sadly this the Six Nations one is in the not so much category for me. And I'm fully aware that it's not made for me. They are made for casual observers of rugby, not people who like literally work in it. But I was not struck too profoundly by it. In fact, the cycling one I think was was a lot better. Mm. And even that one I thought could have been better. But again, I'm aware it's not made for me, who's like a mad cycling fan. I haven't watched Drive to Survive, so I couldn't tell you, but like I wouldn't even include it in a sports documentary category because it's not sport. <laughs> <laughs> but um I haven't I've watched uh what's the what's the golf one called? Um You would have watched it, Gareth, the golf PGA tour one. No, I haven't. <laughs> I didn't even know they had one. Yeah, there's yeah. the golf one. The golf one's actually really excellent as well. And what it does, the golf one, just like it does on the on the tennis one, they focus very much not on the top tier, although they do some there is some focus on the top tier, but it's always those players that sit in that sort of their upcoming, the next generation of players that are coming through there. And uh, I find that really fascinating. I mean, some of the stuff in the golf one was excellent. And particularly the tennis one is excellent. They do have some inserts on, you know, the, the, the Djokovic's of this world, but most of it's about so, those guys coming through to the next so the, generation. So the tennis one I remember was in the news because it was the show that revealed like Nick Kyrgios's battles with depression and the psychological challenges of yeah. being an elite athlete. And that is, I think, telling because it shows you that the documentary series gave you insight that was actually newsworthy, which outside of the documentary series didn't exist. The biggest problem for me with the Six Nations one is that it did not reveal anything that you wouldn't get from just watching a series of interviews with coaches and players after matches. Like, honestly, there were some episodes in that Six Nations one that were just an interconnected series of cliched interviews with players about putting their hands up, giving 110% and how they can be only one winner. It was actually, it was actually uncomfortably cliched in my, in my opinion. And honest, nothing you would not gather if you watched the 10 minutes after every match with a coach from either side, a player and a, and a man of the match from either side, you know, like that, that was the, that was the insight that this documentary series gave. Whereas I I think that even the cycling one, there were interviews with people who I know and follow, and I thought eh, this is this is good. This is the additive insight. The rugby wasn't additive for me. Yeah, Gareth. I mean, let's just make it very clear because we are talking about rugby here that uh, there are lots of Gareth Davieses around this world, and uh, <laughs> the most famous one, of course, is on the other side of our line at the moment. But the second most famous one, of course, was the uh, the, the Welsh fly half. Eh? Um, so we just want to make it very clear to the readers out there. And when, when I first heard that there was a Gareth Davies on our Patreon platform, I remember asking Ross, is that is that the Gareth Davies? He said, yes, it is the Gareth Davies. <laughs> the other guy is the other guy that plays rugby. But besides that, have you watched any of these docuseries? I mean, is there one that is there? Are there some that stand out for you as being excellent and worth recommending? Yeah, the, the, I think the thing with the docuseries uh, that, They've got to balance it between who they're trying to aim it for, because you've got your your casual fan, and then you've got the person who needs to know a little bit more, wants to know a little bit more about the sport. So it must be a very difficult balancing act to go from the personality to um, the nuts and bolts of the sport. So, for example, uh, I was watching the – it was actually quite a good one with um, Quick Step Team, the, the Wolf Pack one. I think it was on Amazon. Um, and – it was very interesting when they went in depth to me uh, about Evanapol testing skin suits and his nutrition and things like that. But I wasn't really interested in the personality of 
them playing darts afterwards in the house sort of thing. And so it's it's that balance between the two. Now, um, the discussion came up on Patreon because I think Josh posted, um, it wasn't a series, it was uh, a documentary called Whistleblowers. Yeah, which is good. Yeah, it's on Rugby Pass. Mm. It's free to watch on Rugby Pass. Um, there's a bit of an endorsement there, which I probably shouldn't have done. <laughs> but it's an excellent. It's about the, the referees during the World Cup, and it provides such good insights to things you would never know about. Um, and you've, you don't even have to be interested in rugby because it's the personalities come through because rugby referees apparently do have personalities. Um, to, see, <laughs> to see them in tears and just the, the selection process of how they get selected for the big games, it's, it's almost nerve-wracking uh, watching them just do their job and the pressure they must be under. So mm. that, that docu- uh, documentary was superb and thanks to Josh for posting it. And it kicked off a little bit of a discussion about... Um, different docu-series because I know American football is big on it uh, and they have another one coming up this year, Quarterback, coming out in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem to get the balance quite right. They're not afraid in America to actually, they don't seem to dumb down sports in any way. They're, they're like uh, John Madden used to do with the commentary. He, he wasn't afraid to get to get into, into the weeds of, um, of the technicalities of the sports. And I think that's what... Uh, a lot of viewers really want. They don't want the insipid stuff. Yeah, that's my. We've had that discussion, right? Yeah. And always, even running, they dumb it down by trying to tell you how fast they're running, and you don't then get the insights. And I think the viewer actually would come back more if they were challenged. I watch a lot of NFL, and I have done for years, and there are still comments that are made by, for instance, uh, Tony Romo, who does the color commentary or the expert commentary, not the color, the expert view on one of the stations. And they, I really, really enjoy it because I don't always know what's going on. That's part of the appeal to me. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's something the Americans do well. Like they've got that 30 for 30 documentary series that ESPN runs. Some of those are just outstanding, but these sort of real life ones that whistleblowers can also endorse really good. Like you'll see, for instance, footage of one of the referees who goes out and on an empty field basically visualizes and then rehearses the game as he sees it in his imagination. So he's officiating invisible players, like our mate on his bike this morning with an invisible tandem partner. Like it's like there's no one there, but he's giving penalties and he's talking to nobody. But he's doing that in his mind as his visualization. And you'll see that footage in that documentary. You'll see, as Gareth said, People won't appreciate how these refs are evaluated for their performance, like how they're scored, Mm -hmm. who gets the semifinals, who gets the finals, and how's that announcement made, and how do they communicate with players during the gaps between play, all that sort of stuff that you would not see is revealed, and that to me is a good documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think about the different docu-series that are on at the moment. There obviously is the Netflix series, as Gareth has alluded to. There's also more specialist ones around cycling teams, and there are lots of different ones floating around on YouTube as well. So uh, let us know how you recommend. Maybe, Gareth, we're starting a, a little uh, a little line there with your best docu-series for sport because on our, on our Discourse channel, because I think I'm always looking for new material and uh, just being able to get uh, some of the members talking about their favorite series could be a good way for to give you a soft material, I guess, to watch. My early submission, sorry, yes. I'm going to jump ahead here, is, is I watched... I didn't ask the, what your favorite one was yet, so yeah, you can have the... the this is going back before. almost 20 years now. The very first time I ever flew overseas, it was 2004, and I flew to Paris, and I watched a documentary on the plane called Busting Down the Doors, and it was about the the creation of professional surfing in like the 1970s. 
and it showed those guys today reflecting back on what it was like for them living on the beach, like basically homeless in Hawaii, trying to set themselves up as professional surfers. It was outstanding. I watched it three times on the flight. It was it was honestly brilliant, and I've never been able to find it again. It was called Busting Down the Doors, best sports documentary I've ever seen. Not on YouTube. I don't know. I didn't. I haven't. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't find it. Maybe I maybe I didn't look properly. Yeah. But yeah, that was outstanding. What's yours? I I think Icarus probably takes the oh, yeah. the can for mm. the the best sort of sports related one. I mean, I have watched that three or four times just because of the just the incredible storyline, and that's just amazing to me. But. Uh, yeah, we'll see. But Gareth, uh, good chance you're going to start a little discourse channel just on your favourite docu series. Yeah, I've just not <laughs> just jotted down the idea now that uh, perhaps we should have a media section as well. Yes, exactly. Mm. exactly. Anyway, uh, let's move on. And there's been, as I said, lots of stories around um, in the news at the moment. The, the next one I'm going to talk about is this discussion in English rugby talking about a potential ban on under eighteen rugby because it's a form of child abuse. Yeah. Now that's a big statement to make and obviously there's lots of issues around that and you know whether parents are not shouldn't allow their children to play contact sports etc etc but just give us the blowdown of that i mean that, that it's not likely to happen i wouldn't think but maybe it is uh, it's not, modern yeah, day and age it's not, honestly like i started with world rugby in 2015 and i remember flying to dublin for my first meeting at the end of january 2015 the week before the six nations started and the newspaper headline that day in the irish times was children should not play rugby. And it was a group of researchers that included the guy who is responsible for this latest call. And sure as night follows day, every year, the week before the Six Nations, this group makes this pitch. Like they have literally, they do it because they know that the mainstream media will pick up rugby stories and they're looking for publicity for their argument. And it honestly, like we, in that first year, I remember writing a paper in response to that claim because they, they effectively argue that children shouldn't play rugby and even if they played a form of rugby, it should be non-contact. And the tackling should only be introduced at the age of 18. And World Rugby had considered that argument because it had come up before. It's not like these people are geniuses who've come up with something new. And we wrote, well, I ended up writing a paper saying that if you delayed the introduction of tackling to the age of 18, you would be doing it in nearly fully developed adults who are considerably more powerful, much stronger, much faster, have much more kinetic energy, much more momentum. And then you're going to impose a technical requirement on a high risk situation. It's crazy. You have to learn the technical competencies in a safe place before you can develop it in a higher risk. That makes sense, mm -hmm. right? You don't, yeah, it's like walk before you run kind of thing. But I mean, that, so, that, but the thing is there are inherent risks in course. this particular age because of the different stages of development. Yes, there are. So they, and, and look, there are elements of their argument. So for instance, in some schools in the, in the UK, rugby is compulsory. I'd be interested to know Gareth's views on that. Like I know that in some schools that you, you have to play rugby. Well, in Wales, you have to play rugby and you have to be able to sing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, that's not quite right. Which one is wrong? I don't think I've ever heard it. No, you don't have to be able to sing, that's for sure. Um, no. <laughs> I don't think it's compulsory in schools. Uh, you usually, I think, uh, there, education there, is compulsory. But there are some schools where rugby was or is. Some schools, I think, some schools do it. It possibly. Um, I'd have to check on that. It was, I'd say, when I went to school in uh, in Bridgend, it was let's say recommended. You were 
not part of the school if you didn't play rugby because that was just the way that Welsh sport mm. is. It's so rugby focused. But it, I, I think this is personally, I think this is a very tricky one because it's an excellent piece and it came up through an article uh, by Sean Ingle. Mm. Um, and I'd like to get your thoughts on what's the angle of these people who are who are publishing the paper before every Six Nations. <laughs> what are they getting out of it? Uh, in some instances, funding uh, through publicity, like because it gives them it gives them the opportunity to talk about something that's relevant and newsworthy, and you can secure funding against that. Uh, <laughs> there's a bit more I can potentially tell you off air when we're not recording, but <laughs> but because we've had a few we've had a few run-ins with some of them. I mean, some of them are personally motivated against the sport. They've had issues, let's just say, with it. And so I don't think all of their motives are pure. And then there are some who are trying to make what they honestly believe is a valid point around the risk to kids who are, have developing brains and are then being exposed to contact. And I am absolutely sympathetic to that. I just don't think that banning something is the way to go about that when you know that what you're actually doing is just transferring the risk onto someone at a later stage when they might be more vulnerable to the same harm you're trying to prevent. So you're basically trading one risk off against a potentially bigger one later. So I think there's a mix of motives. I've always tried, I learned, like you probably don't want to speculate too much on people's motives. I know some of them are more personally motivated than others, but even if they are well-intentioned, I just don't think the way that they're going about it is very constructive or helpful at all. I think there's a solution here that shouldn't involve banning something, but rather trying to understand how you can minimize the risk and then give people choices. And it's interesting when that article came out, uh, the social media discussion around it, because it was picked up by the former coach of Fiji, uh, Simon Rawalui, who then posted, if it were not for rugby, I would be this, which is a theme actually that emerges in that Netflix documentary. There are at least two or three players, Gail Fiku, Ellis Genge, who talk very openly about how if it were not for rugby, they know their lives would be very different and very bad because of where they grew up and the circumstances. So so there are always stories like that. And I, I think I do think that the physical contact nature does have benefits that would not exist if it were partial or less no contact at all. So there's a there's a value to rugby that groups like this don't seem interested in trying to even recognize exists, even if they don't understand themselves. So that's the first problem. But the other, the other big issue is like now that we've got these mouth guards, we've started to understand like where the risk is higher in, in kids. And so, for instance, in New Zealand, no reason to believe they'd be different to the rest of the world, 13-year-old boys and girls experience much, much, much less head contact and head acceleration than 16-year-olds, than 19-year-olds, than adults because they're smaller, slower, less powerful. So that's the safe place in which you want to learn how to tackle because it's actually not the same full contact thing you're going to now watch when you watch England play Italy on the weekend, this coming weekend, England-Wales. It's a different thing. So we, I think we should be trying to facilitate how to do things better, not avoid them. That's well, my take. In New Zealand, don't they do weight banding? In other words, they ban yeah, so, people in a similar weight category to, to make sure that we're having like versus like rather than age versus age. They do partly, and that feeds into the other part of the Sean Engel article that Gareth has mentioned. So it's almost like two things came out last week. I think Sean, I know, was writing the piece on on the age grading separation, which we'll come to. And then as I think he was writing that, this thing came out, ban rugby. And, you know, it was almost the two stories are interwoven now. But, but yeah, I mean, rugby's rugby's part of Welsh culture. Like it's it's massive there. It's in the UK. It's not football, right? And even in Wales, I'm sure it's the second sport. Here, it's the sport. Uh, 
New Zealand, it's the sport. And yeah, I, I think groups like this, they do a tremendous disservice to the people who are actually trying to solve the problem when they polarize the problem the way they do. It really like annoys, I know a lot of people in the sport. Yeah. 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 What do you think, Gareth? I mean, like, and Sean, you know, Sean made the point in his article. He said, like, he said, rug, banning rugby is not the solution, but try telling that to the parents of a kid who's got a second concussion at the age of 15. Like, sure. okay, now it's a different perspective. So I'm always interested to hear my, my job is to help prevent or reduce injuries. It's not to ban rugby. So I'm biased maybe, but I would like to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I mean, obviously I'm very passionate about rugby being Welsh, but I'm also very concerned about the, the, the future of the sport um, because not only because of the head injury um, side of things, but I think there are so, uh, so fewer uh, youth players these days that we see clubs folding quite a lot in Wales um, where there was once a thriving community built around the rugby club there isn't anymore um, and that's because parents are already removing their children from uh, rugby um, not just because of head risks because of of risks all around the game which which does concern me so I I do see that there's a valid point to this um, and I wish there was a simple answer, but as we know, there isn't often a very simple answer in sport. So it's it's really, I want to see the game survive and thrive, but it, it can't without youth coming through. But it, I, then I think, well, if you look at something like youth boxing, surely the, the cry for that to be banned would be just as loud, if not louder. And yet boxing, as we know, I remember Kevin posting a, a fantastic article uh, about uh, the benefits to youth boxing in deprived areas. And without boxing, what would some of these young people have? Mm. And and so just banning something outright doesn't seem to be the solution when it can also lead to so many social implications further down the line. Yeah. So, so one of the group who calls for the ban on rugby up to the age of 18. I, it was once at a conference I was at, and I said to him afterwards, I said, like, you, you guys are arguing for this ban as though you can take risk away. And I don't think you, you appreciate that the risk is actually part of the appeal that attracts these youngsters to the sport in the same way that without boxing, these kids wouldn't have much, right? Yeah. Offer them a sport that's not boxing and it wouldn't work. I'm, like that's a that's a bold assertion, but I'm, I'm going to stand behind it. I genuinely don't think that they would take to a sport that didn't involve boxing, contact, and risk. I don't know if you'd agree, Gareth and Mike. Yeah, certain personalities, I suppose, yeah. are attracted to certain different sports. And it's the same for rugby. So you want, so the risk is the value. Like, and if, and if you took, and that's why when it was a year ago, almost to the day that England decided they'd lower the tackle height to the waist, they then backtracked on that, now it's the sternum. But remember the blowback they got. Because the people who play rugby want the contact and they complain about the game going soft because they want it to be hard. Now, <laughs> what they think is hard is different from what I do. Like, I don't think you need to hit the head to be hard. Like, we can play a hard sport without brain injuries happening as much as they do. So we need to redefine that. But the point is, it must be risky if it's to be valuable. And so I said that to this guy, and he said, no, but that's that's crazy. And, I, and I, we were standing in a, I don't remember exactly what the environment, but there was a playground over the road. And I said, like, look at the the jungle gym. Do, do Americans, do people know what this means? Or is that a South Africanism I've just used? A jungle gym? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, pretty, that's pretty standard, okay. I think. Yeah, the play, playground. 
I thought maybe it was one of those like like a roundabout or a robot. Uh, anyway, I said, look, look at the jungle gym. Like a kid will fall off that and be injured. So you can't take risk away from kids. He says, no, that's why, like that should be banned. So they, they genuinely have a zero risk paradigm and it's crazy. It's stupid. Yeah. It's simply not so, the way the world works, I'm afraid. Exactly. And here's just another thing. Just to, I mentioned we did that mouth guard study in New Zealand. I just want to tell you something real interesting here. When you look at under 13s, under 15s, under 19s, and adult men and women, they spend roughly one third of their rugby time playing a match and two thirds in training. When you look at when they have their head acceleration events, so this means head impacts, the picture is very different. The premiership player has one third of their time is spent in matches, but two thirds of their head impacts are in matches. So their matches are disproportionately more likely to cause head impacts than their training sessions. Makes sense, right? Yeah. As you get younger and younger, the proportion of head impacts in matches goes down and the proportion of head impacts in training goes up. And so the consequence is that in under 13s, 60% of all head impacts are happening in training, whereas in adults, 60% are happening in matches. So it's a complete switch around. But they do the same time of training. So what's going on here is that those 13-year-old kids who are learning to tackle, it's their first exposure, because that's in New Zealand, this is the first time you're exposed to tackle rugby, the process of learning creates the risk, right? Yeah. Well, it so makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. Quite logical. So now, now, what happens when you make someone learn at 18? When everything's 30% faster, 30% more powerful, 50% heavier, the kinetic energy is half mass velocity squared, way higher than it is we're, when you're... We're assuming that, aren't we? What? That the, that, that the risk could be higher if you only started to learn to tackle when you're older. There's no true evidence yeah, but that's, that's that the, there wouldn't be a... Whether that would be absolutely That's true, true but that's yeah. why... that's the, But that's the world rugby, like what if position mm. and it's the position of England, for instance, that's why they're not going to ban tackles in kids up to the age of, they, they will, because that's the, and you're right. I mean, I suppose what you really want to do is do that study, right? Yeah. But who's going to commission that? No. Because what's the plausible theory? Mm. We know that the concussion incidence is twice as high in 18 year olds as it is in 13 year olds. We know that like, so you're more likely to be concussed at 18. We know the tackle technique is a risk factor for concussion in every age group. Poor technique equals concussion. Yes. So if you take those two, two things combined and you say that you're less likely to be concussed at 13 and you're less likely to be concussed with good technique, where would you rather have good technique at 13 or 18? Surely 13 and then carry it with you. you know? So that's, that's the thing we've always pushed back against. And yeah, maybe someone can come and make a plausible argument for why that's not the case. But banning rugby and under, up to, or tackles up to the age of 18 is not it in my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm just um, yeah. I'm just curious. Just to just, I know you're not a medical doctor, but are younger children's skulls and brains fully developed at no. say, thirteen? Would that have an impact on this? Uh, they're not. They're not fully developed, um, and so there is a risk that the cumulative exposure of head impacts or the accumulation of head impacts causes these long-term effects. And that's the argument that this group is now making. So their argument has evolved. In 2015, it was don't tackle as a kid because you'll get concussed. And almost indicative or symptomatic of the wider understanding how it's evolved over the last eight or nine years is 
the 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 sport is no longer as concerned about the concuss, concussive impact as it is about the accumulation of all the impacts, even those that don't cause a concussion. Makes sense. The so-called subconcussive, which is a word that has no clinical meaning, but let, let's go with non-concussive. So I play a match and I'm going to actually be hit on the head ten times, and not one of them will cause a head in, injury to me. Never present. The concern is that in the younger brain that's not as fully developed, the white matter is not as fully developed, the skull maybe and so forth isn't as hard. Um, those accumulations of non-concussive impacts have later in life consequences that are worse. No one's ever shown that, to be clear. Like not, It's not like there's a link between that's, that's yet been proven. There are studies that have come out that show that when people develop CTE later in life, the longer they have played for, the more at risk they are. But it's never gone back to the age of like 13, 14, 15, because the impacts are so so minimal then. So it's a it's such a tricky thing for the sport though, because you don't you don't want to expose the brain to injury, but you kind of have to in order to learn how to deal with the exposure to risk later on. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really difficult. And the, the neurologists for sure are arguing that children's brains are not developed and there should be no head impacts at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Gareth makes the point, and I, I, I kind of, it is a very good point about the fact that if if you have a couple of research studies like this that gets a bit of publicity, in effect, parents are going to be less likely to mm. have their children play the sport and therefore the sport isn't going to grow, as Gareth has just explained, is happening in real time. Yeah. So rugby has a bit of a job to do, to either disprove that there is not an overdue risk mm -hmm. and, to, and to prove that the risk is high if they don't start early. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall into the into the courts of world rugby to try and prove that bit of discourse that, uh, in fact, it's not as bad yeah. as the, the perception it might be. And that's, and that's why the mouth guards become so powerful because yeah. until they weren't developed and refined, there was no way to understand how many head impact a 13 or 15 and 19 year old would have in a season. And so by the time a 13 year old finishes school, how many head impacts has that person had? We never, we had to guess now, at least we can measure to some extent. Right. Yeah. But the problem, the problem with the declining numbers is then it creates another risk because what unions do, and this was really the main point that Sean wrote that article for is for instance, in the RFU, they saw declining numbers at 14 and declining numbers at 12. And they said, well, what if we combine them? Because at the moment, we don't have enough 12-year-olds to play a match, not enough players to put together a, a you know, 30 aside. We don't have enough 14s, but if we mix them, we can do it. But now you see what you've done is you've solved one problem but created a new risk because now you've got 14-year-olds and 12-year-olds playing together at the same time. And so that was actually what, what Sean was initially intending to cover before the ban, the, the, the tackle and ban rugby argument came along. So, yeah, the RFU's sitting now with this real dilemma of like, if I didn't do that, I'd have no rugby. Mm -hmm. But if I do that, then I might have increased risk rugby. So what do I do? Mm. It's difficult. Well, I'm sure with your involvement in world rugby, there'll be some discussion around this yeah. uh, going forward. It'd be interesting to see whether there's any further developments in that area. And then just before we get on to our main topic today, just a, a little side story, talking about dangerous sports. And this is the incidence of the ice hockey player, Adam Johnson, who died when apparently a skate uh, he was cut by a skate and later died in hospital. I mean, this is an unbelievable story again. But it it's, goes down to inherent risk when it comes to uh, these sort of things. But the story is that he's a 29-year-old American, died in October last year. Um, he was playing in a cup match at Sheffield's Utila Arena between the Nottingham Panthers, Johnson's team, and the Sheffield Steelers when his neck was cut by a skate and he later died in hospital. There we go. So this is a story um, in fact, based in the UK. So again... 
it's all to do with consent, how much risk is involved in these sort of things. Um, and can you make a sport entirely safe? And in the case of that, yeah. this is almost a freak accident, isn't it? This was an awful one. I remember what it was actually there's a video of it. Mm. And it's a couple of guys skating, like from left to right, sort of in mid, mid ice, if you want to call it that. And there's a little bit of overbalance. And one of the guys goes forward with his leg lifted up behind him. And the blade slices across the carotid artery of the of the Johnson, who then bleeds out and dies. It was awful, awful. Okay. And so, freak accident. And so, the reason it became news. And Gareth, was it Kevin that shared the link, or it was not Kevin actually this time? Um, it no. was Chris Dove. Ah, Chris Dove. Yeah, thanks for this link. I mean, it was a really, really interesting article that he shared a, a link to, and it basically spoke about how the. I don't know, can we call this, I suppose the perpetrator or the person who caused it was arrested, which would yeah. be, which would be like remarkable. And last year we spoke about a similar case in ice hockey where manslaughter charge was brought as a consequence of something that happened on the ice. And this article that Chris shared a link to uh, basically gives a number of different examples from different sports about where the line is between what we accept as risk and when the risk becomes actually assault, or in this case, manslaughter so yeah i mean it's one it's one for the lawyers and I, I will say in the context of our previous conversation like it really is fascinating to like try and understand like what someone consents to when they walk onto a field in a contact sport never mind combat like you can almost park mma and boxing and sports aside but in a contact sport like what are you willing to accept mm. and at what point do you have recourse to say not that and therefore someone's guilty of something far worse than just a bad tackle yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, very sad case, and uh, there is a and Gareth. Any anything to add there? Uh, it's it's come up because it's back in the news because uh, they called him the suspect, which seems a little bit harsh to me. Um, yeah, he's, uh, yeah. he's suspected of manslaughter, um, but the uh, he was bailed until early February, so it, it it will probably come back into the news now within the next few weeks. I would have thought. It's um, the the discussion on Discord at the time and and since has been about uh, implied con consent and what's part of the game. Um, and as Ross says, when you walk onto that field or onto that uh, arena, then you, you're consenting. I would have thought too, as long as it's not deliberate. Whatever happens to you, but can that be proved in the court of law? And uh, and the discussion talked about um, about this. And if you remember um, Roy Keane, um, the incident a few years ago. Well, actually, it was it was the start of the uh, start of the century when he uh, he stamped on somebody's leg and broke their leg, and that was going to go to court and saying, "Is that part of the game?" And it's it, it's difficult to it's difficult to say. Um, so I don't think that ever actually did go to court. But if my worry is if the legal system starts finding sport as, a, as an easy target, then it's going back to, to what we just discussed in rugby. It, is it going to be better, too safe to be sorry to, to play a sport? Do you say, oh, I should, I, you know, I, I can't tackle. Okay, it's high. I might get sent off. And then you get, ta and then you get slammed with a, a court case mm. it's you know it's it's not good for sport if it if it allows that in and well it's not a case of whether it allows it in the legal system is the legal system but then again that's different in every country and then there was a lovely quote on our patreon channel um from james who said and it kind of wraps up what we mean by implied consent he said implied consent 
goes hand in hand with the playing culture. When you play sport, you consent to the to all the content that is part of that sports culture. If you are playing football, you have consented to every trip, push and pull that is associated with the game. And that, that's a pretty good summary, I think, of, of implied consent because that is actually what we're talking about. Yeah, and then you think about combat sport now and like Gareth brought up earlier, like why these conversations don't happen about boxing? It's because I think in boxing, the consent is understood that you're almost consenting to everything. <laughs> And in rugby, one of the challenges has been like, what are players really consenting to? Can they be informed in their consent to the, the potential long-term risk of brain injuries? So that's been the argument that's been put forward. And a lot of people, I think somewhat simplistically in the last five or six years have said, just make all the players sign a document that absolves rugby of any consequences when they're 55 years old. And sadly, things aren't always as simple as that. But that's kind of like one, a lot of people's solution is just consent to it and get on with it. But the sport, you see, still has an obligation to minimize the risk. So, for example, in boxing, you still have to check that the gloves are compliant with the rules because those are there to minimize the risk. Uh, you still have medical screens to make sure that the boxer is healthy enough to fight. When you watch MMA, and interestingly enough, we we have our first MMA champion in this country, Drikus Duplessis, won the title a couple of weeks back now yep. in a fight against Sean Strickland in Canada. And we've spoken about it. it would be wonderful to talk to a guy like that about the mindset around risk and it's not to say that we condone what mma asks fighters to accept and do to one another but i think the i think there is a really interesting discussion around combat sports and what in what consent athletes give when they step into the ring or the octagon as it were but but those sports don't just let it happen it's not like just consent and get on with it there are still safety belts and airbags metaphorically speaking and it's the same thing rugby it's the same thing ice hockey now so now neck guards will be compulsory to try and avoid a repeat of what happened to johnson you have to still do that stuff and that's why again i'm so sorry but not sorry for bringing back to rugby i've just submitted a paper to a scientific journal that shows that when a tackle in rugby is red carded the risk of a concussion is 272 times higher than when a tackle is legal Sure. So the thing that's getting a player sent off, when you watch that Six Nations game, France, Ireland, when you watch the World Cup final, those tackles are 272 times more likely. Not guaranteed. Like It's not like every red card causes a concussion. But they are so many, many, many times more likely to cause concussion than legal tackles. And when that's the reality, the sport cannot say, get on with it. It has to try and stamp out the thing that's highest in risk, right? Makes sense. Yeah. And that's that's kind of like the delicate thing for sports. It's like a it's a volume adjuster, not an on-off switch. There's no all risk, no risk. It's where do we titrate? How do we calibrate and allow enough risk? The players consent to that risk, knowing that we might have more risk, but it's accidental, but never deliberate. Therefore, we're not. Li it's it's very it's fascinating to me. Sports sports law is a really interesting area, particularly in this in this domain. Yeah. I always thought it was 268 times more. Yeah. No, 272. 272. These details matter. These there details go. matter. Yeah. Right. So now onto a topic which I think is speaking one of, of consent. Speaking yeah. of consent, is this is the topic of the enhanced games. And if there was ever a story, I've been around the block a few times as a journalist, and I've covered lots of sporting events. Some of them real, some of them not real. I've been introduced to events that are supposedly happening but never do because they want the publicity to try and create the excitement, et cetera, et cetera. And the more I look up about the enhanced games, the more I realize what a load of complete bollocks it is. <laughs> because the latest story is that they have now got funding, seeding funding. 
I've seen some of the media, how they interview the so-called athlete who's faster than Usain Bolt because he's enhanced. And you never see who this person is. I've seen some of the messaging that they put up on their social media. And Gareth, I know that you were there literally at the start when they first announced this. Um, what do you think of this situation right now? Because I'll put my 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 uh, line in the sand and suggest this event will never happen. And it's the biggest load of, as I said, bollocks I've ever come across in my life. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think I'll paraphrase the, uh, I think it's the US anti-doping chief who called it a clown show. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it is beyond belief. When it first came up last summer, we had a long discussion about it in Patreon and it just seemed absolutely ridiculous. Just, uh, it's just really to explain it's, um, it's, uh, his name, his name, uh, Aaron D'Souza. Aaron D'Souza is a lawyer. He studied law at Oxford or Cambridge. One of those, he, like every time his name is mentioned, it's like almost like it's compulsory to say that he studied at one of those universities. Yes. Yeah. But he, he wants to introduce uh, a games where basically there is no drug testing. You can, uh, you, that's why it's called the enhanced games, um, in direct competition to the Olympics and athletics. And as you say, I was sort of there at the start because I was interested in the story and, um, they did a presentation <clears throat> online, um, and created a, a, a discord channel rather Oddly, I thought, for a, a rather large corporation, as they were claiming to be, you don't just normally create a Discord channel and let, allow a load of people in just to make comments. So I was interested in, in it and um, listened to what they had to say. And uh, if if the devil's in the detail, then there's no devil in this because there was no detail. It was just vague statements about um, how enhanced athletes um, would would almost take the human race forward, it felt like. It, it, it was quite strange. Um, I, I just read this one of his quotes here. It's not a question, can we break the nine second hundred meter? I'm sure we will. I want to see 40, 50, 60 year old break world records because performance medicine is the rod to anti-aging. It's the route to the fountain of youth. Well, if that's not hyperbole, I don't know what is. Mm. Of course, you're going to beat nine second hundred meters if if you you juiced up to the eyeballs i would have thought um but then uh, uh, it, it sounds funny but uh, as i delved deeper into it i didn't quite realize quite how many people are training in with enhanced methods especially in i know the um the strength sports um and so there is obviously medical concerns and mm. those questions they haven't answered about how how on earth they would of safe enhanced games is beyond me and the other thing that they seem very anti the olympics and anti the drug testing agencies then it's almost as if they're not saying that we can run in parallel but we are right and how dare they force athletes to not be able to enhance themselves it's it, like you say i i agree with you and your uh and your thoughts about it so a couple couple things for me like because because I, I agree with you. Uh, the The safety one is interesting because I think that's probably one of the main things that will cause it to never really get off the ground because 
in order to facilitate the participation of athletes in these competitions, they need medical doctors to provide the drugs. They, they either need it to happen that way or they need to have a black market that provides the doping to the athletes. And if it's a black market, then it's so high in risk that I can't see any viable sponsorship model around it, right? If it's medical doctors, then I can't see any medical ethical model that surrounds it and makes it work. So either way, it's going to be tripped up, whether it's facilitated by doctors or black markets. I just don't see that it's viable. And that's that's assuming you get the caliber of athlete in. Because I could go down to the local club now and find the guy running 100 meters in 10.7. He's not going to break nine with no, any amount of doping. No matter how much doping, I agree. And, and, and like... We, we we sort of know that because Ben Johnson didn't break 979. <laughs> and I think it's safe to say that Ben Johnson was the product of a fairly good system, doped up to the very limits of what doping could do at that time. And okay, 30 years have passed more. Maybe Ben Johnson today with new shoes and spikes would be a 9-6-something guy, potentially. But that's still a long way off nine. And that was a really good caliber athlete. So... The athlete you need to give the drugs to to run that fast needs to already be quite good. And I don't see them getting that caliber at those volumes. So that's the first. So I think whilst there will be a morbid fascination with what um, can be done with unlimited doping, I think they might get one or two events, but I think the performances will be so mediocre that people will lose interest in it. Because it just won't be good enough. And that's assuming they're safe. Now, now you bring in the legal issue. Like these days, you can't have alcohol or cigarette companies sponsor you. It's sports betting's coming under some pressure to not be a sponsor. So what does the sponsorship market for this kind of thing look like? Now, the reason they're in the news now is because they've got some fairly wealthy individuals making pledges to give money. Like one of them was uh, Peter Thiel, who's the founder of PayPal. There's a couple others who've made their money in venture capital work and, for instance, cryptocurrencies. So it seems like this is the kind of person who's going to prop it up. It's almost like when I see names like that, I'm thinking bro science, you know, like Silicon yeah. Valley, like bro scientists. That's who's going for this. That's not enough to viably sustain a sport. Yeah. Who, yeah, who are those guys that are going to give it money? There were a few names. It was, as yeah. you see, yeah, Christian Thiel. Um, uh, I mean, he, is, he has got $6 billion to his name, apparently. So he's, he's got he's got the funding. I don't know why would you get involved is what gets me. And then there's, uh, this is going to be a tricky one, Balaji Sivrin Vasan, a cryptocurrency investor uh, uh, of Coinbase, and Christian Angermeyer, who is a biotech investor. Well, that's where we're looking at the Fountain of Youth side of it, I guess. Mm, exactly. He says the games will undoubtedly inspire the public's imagination. Well, yeah, there's lots of ways to inspire the imagination, but yeah. I'm sure this is the way. And what what I was wondering about was, would you have different categories? I mean, you've got the 100 meters, but have you got the 100 meters for those on EPO and then the 100 meters for those on, I don't know, lugworm blood? Or, I think it's anything it's, goes, right? It's, it's So you, you could be having athletes trying to take cocktails of performance-enhancing drugs. It, it, it just sounds horrendous to me. Now, they, they said something on their website, and maybe it came up when D'Souza did his press conference around the safety element, and they said that they would do medical checks. Someone surely asked him about that because, like, wh what medical check would you do on an athlete who now wants to compete in the 100 meters and is unmitigatedly dope? Yeah, because they say they'll be the safe, safest game. Yeah, how do, you, how do you ensure that? Like, what's the – so has anyone ever challenged them on that? That you're aware of? No, not uh, not that I know of. I haven't seen that anywhere. 
Um, to be honest with you, I forgot about the whole thing for until this investment funding because everything died down. It was very, very quiet until this sudden email. They they did a few promotional things with some silhouette of a guy who reckons he can run nine seconds but isn't allowed to. I mean, like you say, which athletes do they think they're going to get? Are they just going to get a load of old dopers who are currently serving bands? And I can imagine World Athletics saying, well, if you if you appear in this clown show, well, don't ever think you're coming back to... Yes, and that's why, and that's why you're going to get like a second-tier club athlete who's got no aspirations of going to the Olympics because they're either they know they're too slow or they're too old and on the way declining down, and they'll say, "Well, let me give this one shot," but then they'll run ten point two instead of ten point seven, with with all the risk of harm and the stigma attached. Which I'm I'm kind of like in a way relieved to see the blowback against it. It's like at least it restores some faith in people wanting there to be credibility in their sport. I mean, that's because when you watch American sports, don't care about doping, for instance. And it's often in our position, easy to like become resigned and say, oh, you know, people just are apathetic about this. Because this this debate, by the way, about like legalized doping is actually older than the ban rugby one. I remember back in 2005, there's a professor of ethics at Oxford, a guy called Julian Savalescu, who regularly brings out papers saying, here's why we should just legalize doping. Now that's legalized doping within the Olympic movement. This is let's create something alongside the Olympics that legalizes doping or allows for doping. So the the philosophical underpinnings of enhanced games are not new, but this guy seems to have marketed it in a way that means we're talking about it more. And yeah, I'm encouraged that there's rejection of it, which is yeah. at least something. It would be far worse. Imagine everyone said, that sounds cool. Let's go for it. It would be much worse. You know, I, if I was going to give them, Mr. D'Souza any advice, I would say instead of trying to put on these games, why not go to a, 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 an athlete now and say, I'll tell you what, we'll give you $10 million if we can juice you up as much as you want and we see if we can have a, an event where you can break the world record using these enhanced techniques. In other words, a kind of bionic man. Proof of and concept. Proof of concept. Yeah. And then I'd say, yeah, that 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 that's interesting, and it's an interesting from a from a science perspective and a research perspective, and what can be done in that situation. But whether it's whether it's something you can actually make an entire event out of, I, I really doubt. But I'd be interested to take you know a top class runner now, somebody that's just about to end his peak, and say, we'll give you this amount of money. Mm. You'll end your career in the normal space, but um, we'll 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 make it worth your while. And we'll see what you can do. That would be quite fun, actually. Yeah. Like I'm right. not, not endorsing, but I, it, yeah. there is a certainly the physiologist to me would be fascinated. The other one is uh, here we are at the bottom of Alpe d'Huez. Mm. The record is held by Marco Pantani. Here are thirty guys. Whoever gets it to the top first gets ten million dollars. Go, yes. <laughs> and we're not testing anybody. And see what happens. <laughs> so there, I can see I can see why there's a like a morbid fascination. Yeah, there but is. the reality well, is that the best athletes are not going to put themselves in the frame for that. I mean, this, this, this includes combat sports as well, which is, is fairly <laughs> worrying because, I mean, that's, and that's where I guess the morbid fascination comes in, watching like people beat each other up while uh, on steroids is, you know, it's, well, I suppose that's what MMA has been doing for years, but it, it, it just, I don't know. It 
it just doesn't sit right with me. And I, what I don't understand is, is their reasoning behind it, whether or not it's, it's to make money and it's, it's almost a scam. I don't know because the rhetoric that comes out of them, I'm just reading another quote here uh, saying why anti-aging has been so stymied in the scientific community is because hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money around the world is going to fund anti-science authorities like WADA and USADA, whose job is to stop scientific progress. Uh, the, the reality is that the IOC and WADA have created an unsafe system which has forced the use of performance enhancements underground. Well, and you hear that though, like it's not that surprising now to discover that the investors are those Silicon Valley tech billionaires because they, they just lap this like anti-aging bro science stuff up. Mm. So it's actually not surprising they're, they're, they're jumping on it. But so you think... to describe it. It's just utter rhetoric, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's exactly what it is. I think there's so a it... movement towards it, Gary. So you were going to ask, do you think? I was going to say, you think it's possibly a vehicle just for, for pushing a, you know, a biotech agenda <laughs> and to make money. Well, it wouldn't surprise me at all. You know, there's that guy that's taking 101 supplements a day to try and stay young. If you've seen, I think that came up on Patreon as well. I forget the fella's name. He Uh, reckons he's going to, for the good of humankind, he is going to figure out how to to stop aging. Not not slow down, stop aging. And he's only taking 100-odd supplements a day to achieve this. It's insane. But it's that kind of like weird psychology and thinking, philosophy that I think is... Overla- I don't. I wouldn't say that I'm putting it on a direct line to enhance games, but it certainly overlaps with it. It's great because we're going to have him and the Zuck- and Mark Zuckerberg and his wife who want to now cure all diseases. So we've got both of them. So hopefully in our lifetime we'll all not age and we'll never have any diseases <laughs> if they have their way. And, and lots of humans running sub <laughs> eight eight point nine exactly. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. thanks very much, everybody. It's been a fascinating discussion. And uh, thank you to all of our Patreon who are now moving on to our new channel and discourse, hopefully to continue the good discussions. Big thank you to Gareth Davies, who's, as I said, been very instrumental in building this community and uh, part of our little science and sport community. And as usual, Professor Ross Tucker, thank you for your time. But from us, for now, it's goodbye. You have been listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on X. Facebook, Instagram, and join the conversation on our exclusive Science of Sport Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.